Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with Judge Teodosio. Judge, it's nice to have you here. Great to have you visit the court. Judge Teodosio runs a compassionate drug court in Summit County, Ohio, and it's known as the Turning Point. So, Judge, can you tell us just a little bit about how it got started? Sure, Greg. When I was elected to office back in 2006, Judge Mary Spicer was the drug court judge, and she was in the last year of her service on the court and thought I would be a good fit as uh, to replace her in that position. So for the last eight years, I've been running our drug court, which we renamed the Turning Point Program uh, because of the stigma that attaches to drug court. And we're looking to save lives and turn lives around. So we thought Turning Point was a, was a great name. Um, so how does it work? Can you kind sure. of describe in detail how the court works? Well, we have individuals who are involved in the criminal justice system. So they have been charged with a felony offense. In the common pleas court, we we deal with uh, felony level offenses. We have 10 judges. The judges can take a look at an individual that's before them, recognize that they have an addiction issue, and refer them into the turning point program in a couple of ways. For low-level offenders who do not have a long criminal history, there's a form of probation known as intervention in lieu of conviction, where if they maintain sobriety for a year and follow the rules, they can, at the end of that year, have their charges dismissed. It's a beautiful program. Uh, So let's say one of the judges enters somebody into intervention in lieu and finds that they're testing uh, positive for heroin or any other illicit substance. They're struggling. Instead of terminating from them from that program, they can refer them into the Turning Point program to get that added intensive treatment and oversight in their case. So I would pick up that case, follow them through their year of sobriety, hopefully, and at the end dismiss the charges. The other type of participant we have is an individual who has been convicted of a crime, and placed on community control, which used to be known as probation. Mm -hmm. And during the course of that probation term, again, they're getting probation violations for testing dirty, 
or they're not showing up and have a history of drug abuse. And the court, myself or one of my nine colleagues, can take the position that rather than terminate them from community control and send them to prison, we're going to give them an opportunity to deal with the issue, their substance abuse issue, in a more intense manner. That would be referral to the Turning Point program, in which case then I would take over that case as well, get them involved in the program, and hopefully uh, turn their lives around. The program works this way. The so when they get into the program, they realize that at that point they're saying, okay, I realize that if I don't complete the program and I, I fall out for whatever reason, this is what I'm going to be charged with and, and well, no, convicted that, of. That charge is there. They have been convicted if they're on the track two uh, leg or phase, which mm -hmm. is somebody on community control. Mm -hmm. If they don't complete the program, those individuals could be sentenced to prison. And there's no fighting that at that point because they've traded that. Right. I'm the judge. Well, yeah. there is fighting that because I'm the judge and it's my decision ultimately. So, okay. Okay. Uh, and I don't like to send drug addicts to prison, but sure. just I wanted, have done that in the past. Yeah, just wanted to have a sense for what's at mm -hmm. stake there, and you know, because they they have something in the game, a little bit of leverage, and boom, now they're in the program. Absolutely. Okay. And the phase one people who are in intervention in lieu, they could lose that opportunity of having that charge dismissed at the end if they don't successfully complete my program. Okay. Uh, we would just terminate them from this intervention in lieu of conviction program, and they would be stuck with a felony offense that they could not get dismissed at the end of the program. Yeah. So needless to say, you've got some highly motivated people. Absolutely. Especially the the folks in our phase one, I, I stress to them, this is not only are you going to be able to live a sober life, you're going to be able to avoid a felony conviction. How important is that? For your career, for your life, everything. Yeah. Absolutely. So do you want me to talk a little bit about the way the program works? Please. Very good. So they come into the program with an assessment. We want to assess them for mental health issues and substance abuse issues. Most of these people have had a traumatic event in their past that, that they're not willing to talk about at first or that they've suppressed or they have some other sort of mental health issue. It's imperative that we uh, address the mental health issues of our participants. Studies clearly show that if you do not address both the mental health aspect and the substance abuse aspect of an individual's uh, situation, you're not going to succeed. And how does your court facilitate that, addressing that? Well, we have a trauma specialist that we utilize. We also utilize Summit Psych and Portage Path. Uh, we collaborate with a number of partners in the community, I guess is the best way to say sure. that. And once we have the assessment, we'll develop a treatment plan for them. Obviously, it will involve uh, addressing both of those issues. We'll randomly drug screen them, which they are required to take, random drug screens. If they don't, they're before the court for a sanction. Uh, we will also require them to follow through with self-help meetings and uh, follow through with meetings with their case managers. And the way it works, Greg, quite frankly, is we monitor them very closely. They're before the court uh, once a week for the first month. And thereafter, if they're struggling, they're brought before me. When I say struggle, maybe they do not uh, drop a urine drug screen for a week. 
You know, they miss their urine drug screening or they're late for their appointments. This is a difference between this type of a program and somebody on community control or probation. We don't let them get away with those sorts of things. If they don't follow the rules to a T, they're back before the court for a consequence. Now, that's very important because, as we know, most people with addiction issues are great manipulators. Yep. Uh, They lie to their parents. They lie to their boss. They lie to their fiancés. They lie to their children. Um, it's a pattern for them. So honesty is, is really a huge factor for me. If somebody tests dirty and they've shown up at their caseworkers meeting and they volunteer that they're struggling and that they used the previous week, that's a big difference from somebody who shows up and said everything's going fine and the next drug screen shows them positive for opiates. Uh, they're going to get sanctioned either way, but the sanction for somebody who is honest will be less severe than somebody who is not honest. And I've heard everything, of course, from uh, I didn't use, the test is wrong, I must have used a spoon that I forgot to wash, disturb my coffee back when I was using, and it was on the counter, and there had to be some residue on it, too. Pretty inventive. Uh, creative, I'd say, yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Another individual claimed that he must have been intimate with a woman who was using over the weekend because that's the only way he could have tested positive he didn't use. Oftentimes I'll say, I want you to turn around and take a look at the courtroom because this is a very, it's probably one of the biggest uh, drug courts in the state, quite frankly. So typically how many participants would you have in your courtroom at any one time, would you say? Well, we have over 200 participants in the program, so I would say... They're in different phases, probably about 70, 70 people. So they turn around and they're sharing their BS story to 70 people out there. All of whom are either laughing or I'll say, how many yeah. people believe that story? Wow. No hands go up. How many think that he's being dishonest? All the hands go up. And then I say, well, let's, get, let's be honest here. Let's get real. Uh, on the other hand, it's very important that we reward positive behavior. And it can be something as simple as uh, applauding. Judicial praise is very important. If somebody comes up to me and says, I've got five days clean, and that's a milestone for them, my job is to make sure that they know that I'm proud of them for that fact. I might lead the applause in that case. Uh, If they get three months sobriety, we may give them a paper certificate, which I thought at first was Sounded sort of silly. I mean, everybody gets those through uh, CYO sports or spelling bees. Don't mean a lot to most people. Then I gave my first certificate, and I saw the smile that brought to that person's face, how proud they were to have earned that certificate. I'll never forget the day that one young person looked at me and said, Judge, this is important for me. I've never been recognized for a accomplishing anything ever in my life. So that certificate meant quite a bit to them. We'll also give them uh, gift certificates, gas cards, uh, any way we can to to reward positive behavior. So your program completely changes the culture of the courtroom and that whole environment. Absolutely. And what you accomplish out of that. Well, when I first started doing this eight years ago, people would say, 
Tirosio, you are soft on crime. These are felons. You should put them in prison. You're, you're, you got to be tougher with these people. Boy, have times changed, Greg, because what I was advocating there and what they now, those people now realize is that when you take an addict and you put them in prison for six months, eight months, nine months, 12 months, they're going to come out with that with those same issues, and they're going to continue that criminal conduct. So now that there's been some education in the community, people realize that we're not being soft on crime; we are being smart on crime. Uh, we're turning lives around. We're we're changing that pattern of recidivism, where people who were committing crimes are now working full time, purchasing homes and cars raising healthy families, uh, doing positive things in their community. And people don't realize how expensive it is to incarcerate an individual. It is very expensive for a taxpayer to pay for uh, guarding an, an individual through prison guards, feeding them, dealing with their medical conditions. Much cheaper to the taxpayer to utilize a program like, like the Turning Point program and provide treatment as opposed to incarceration. I'd like to read your mission statement, if I could, because I think that it, it really extends well beyond just the name um, of a, a drug court. It extends it well beyond that. The mission of the Summit County Turning Point Program is to improve the overall quality of life in our community by providing a court-supervised program for substance-dependent offenders to enhance public safety, reduce crime, hold offenders accountable, reduce costs to the community, and provide an opportunity for offenders to transform into positive contributing members of society. In reading that, it really struck me how profound the impact of the program can be on the entire community. So in the eight years, can you put in the bigger picture, put it in perspective for us? Sure. I welcome anybody to come down to the Common Police Court on a Monday morning at 9 o'clock and just witness the successes that you will see. You know, there have been a lot of tragedies and the uh, media covers death, death, death with heroin. And what you'll see in this program is hope and change. And I think we really have to, to send that message that there is hope for people struggling with addiction. There is hope for people with heroin addictions. Um, every week, and I can't remember a time this hasn't happened, when I open court, I'll look around the courtroom and there will be somebody who has successfully completed the program who has come back, not because I told them to come back, voluntarily return to the courtroom so that they can share their story with the individuals that are currently in the program. Uh, so we know it's working. We know it's working because we don't see these people coming back through the criminal justice system. Is it 100%? Obviously not. Uh, we've lost a few people, unfortunately. Uh, but that's the nature of the disease. Our success rate, last time that I put a number to it, was around 58 or 59%. Now, for those of you who think that's low, Remember, we are taking people who have struggled on community control. They are really the most difficult uh, individuals in the system. We don't take uh, 
we don't take the easy ones. I should say it that way. Sure. But no, uh, those percentages are really very impressive, yeah. actually. From from what I know, we're very the proud of them. Talk to. Yeah, sure. So, um, Judge, you've got a lot of people on the team there. Yes. So your team consists of, of course, yourself, the judge, prosecutor, the defense counsel, substance abuse treatment specialist, law enforcement, correctional personnel, educational and vocational experts. They all have to collaborate together to, you know, for this one goal, to see these people through your program on to graduation and productive lives. So a big part of this is you don't put that many people together, professionals, and have it magically work. You know, it takes a strong leadership mm. to make that happen. So can you speak to that just a little bit? Well, we have a wonderful, wonderful group of people working on our Turning Point team. And I call it a team because uh, we can expand that to family members of the participants. We tell them they are an extension of our team because they're around their loved ones 24-7, whereas they're only with us for a few few hours uh, during the week when they make their visits to their caseworker or in their treatment. But yes, it's, it's important to collaborate. And as the judge, it's my job to lead the team. So I have the final decision. While we'll discuss every individual's situation, ultimately, it is my decision as to what the level of the sanction should be, whether or not uh, they're appropriate for graduation, whether or not uh, well, I, it's my job to make the tough decisions. Let's put it that way. But we have um, a team that works very well together. We meet every week prior to opening court as a team, and we review every individual that's going to appear in court that day. I want to make sure I know if they're doing well, if they're struggling. Uh, if they are struggling, I want to know you know, what the situation is, what the circumstances were. Uh, and I want input from everybody as to what's the next appropriate course to take. That could be some county jail. It could be residential treatment. It could be a halfway house. It could be sober housing. Uh, it's great to live in Summit County. This community has so many resources that we can utilize to help individuals. Interval Brotherhood Home has been uh, a true blessing. I can't, I can't begin to tell you how blessed we are to have that organization in our community. The successes we've had from our participants who have gone through that program has, has just been amazing. So they, they talk about the court. I've heard it called a, more of a therapeutic court. I've heard it called more like a town hall meeting because I want, I want to hear from the participants. You know, they have a right to be heard, and we've got defense counsel that are part of the team so that they can advocate for them. Uh, we have a prosecutor as well, but it's a totally different role than you would normally see. These prosecutors who are involved in this program understand that this is a disease. And um, while they may argue for sanctions, they're not going to give up on these people. Uh, that's the key. Many of them have seven, eight, nine sanctions. That sounds terrible, but this is a disease. And, and it takes a while 
to reverse what what they've done to their midbrain and the changes that have that have happened there. So we we graduate our sanctions knowing that they're going to struggle at first and they may may go back to to using, but we're not going to give up on them. Okay. So a couple of stats. How long till graduation? How long on average do people stay under the supervision of drug court? Year and a half, I would say, is the average. average? Okay. We will extend them and and oftentimes, with their permission, of course, I don't think anybody has said they don't want to stay in the program. Um, so I'd say our average is a year and a half. Okay. And then they graduate. You actually have a graduation ceremony? We do. Awesome. Some people, some courts do that on a special day where they just do graduations. I do them every week, and I do it for this reason, Greg. It's such a positive uh, ceremony that I want the people who are going through the program or who are struggling while they're in the program to witness this and to hear from that graduate what life is like now. You know, a lot of times I'll put up their booking picture, much to their chagrin, because they look just totally different once they've successfully completed the program. So we do those uh, typically at the beginning of our court session. So if people want to see that, they should get down to the court about nine o'clock to witness witness uh, these graduations. And oftentimes, mom or dad will be there, a child will be there, brother, sister, and we go through a lot of tissues. I'll bet, I'll bet. And again, how long on average would you say your graduates, you know, what percent make it to long-term sobriety, would you say? You know, we haven't really tracked those numbers real well. I think we probably could do a better job of that. One thing I can tell you, though, uh, we see these people coming back to court to talk about their mm -hmm. sobriety. Yeah. So I know it's working. Yep. Uh, I don't see them coming back through the criminal justice system. I, that's a great sign yep. that, they're, that they're, they're doing well. I'll, uh, you know, this is a campaign for year for me, and I can't tell you how many parades I was in this year where somebody would run out of the crowd, meet me in the middle of the road, give me a big hug, and tell me, thank you, uh, how well they're doing. It, it's, it is the most rewarding part of my job as a judge. I'll bet. That's amazing. So... Could you name some of the factors that come into play for those that are successful long-term, those that are coming running out of the crowd? Yes. You know, there's got to be a few common elements that you can point to and you can say, yeah, they did that. And, you know, a lot of them do this right, this right, this right. What would those be? I think the number one factor is support, you know, getting rid of those old friends that used. And they like to say how they were duped into those friendships. In other words, when they were in jail... Their dope dealer never came to see them. When they uh, were in the hospital because of an overdose, their dope dealer never came to see them. Uh, so we stress, and we're, I'm always asking the question, tell me about your support group. How big is it? And it starts off sometimes with the family, and I stress it. It has to be, it has to be big. I'll turn to somebody who is in the courtroom maybe who came back to visit and say, well, 
let's let's talk about your support group. How big is it? And they'll say 50, 60, 70 people. Wow. Yeah. They need to have access to somebody who they can call when they get that craving. As we say, it's day-to-day, hour-to-hour. So it's a peer who's gone through this as part of their support group who yeah. has maybe a few steps ahead of them. Well, I like uh, I would prefer people in all stages of recovery. You want somebody who's been in sober for years and years, 5, 10, 12, 20. Uh, our substance abuse counselor, main counselor, has been clean for, I think, close to 30 years. And what a interesting statement he made to somebody who was before the court to get a three-month sobriety award. He turned to him after telling him he'd been sober for uh, close to 30 years and asked him, he says, who do you think's got the longer, who do you think's been sober longer, you or me? And of course, the young man said, obviously you, Steve. And Steve turned to him and said, well, what time did you get up this morning? The young man said, five o'clock. And he says, well, you've got me beat. You've been sober longer than I have. What a great way to make the point that it's day to day. So a, a strong sober support structure is imperative. Obviously, we're, uh, we believe in the 12 steps. Um, and so we like to see them continue with their meetings. And even at that three-month sobriety, when they're getting that award, we, we stress to them, how that's a real danger point for them. We don't want them getting complacent, dropping off on their meetings or thinking that they can do this on their own. So uh, I think those are the two two biggest factors, a great support group and continuing on with your meetings or surrounding yourself with positives and not going back to those old acquaintances. Okay. You mentioned families also. So can we drill down on that and the family's role? I think it's so difficult at times for them to wrap their head around what their role should be here. How can they best support somebody in your drug? Sure. This is so important because I've had families in court. Listen, we all love our children dearly. It's, it's, it's very, very difficult for a parent. Um, but there's a big difference between loving your child and enabling your child. Uh, that's where we run into problems. Uh, I've had, I just had on Monday a parent whose son was taken into custody. It was an interesting, an interesting appearance because I had run into this young man at Home Depot, I think it was, and he looked great. He was working. And I commented to him, because he was doing well for a while, how, how great he looked. And he was, I saw him in his uniform and congratulated him. And remember when I said honesty was the key to this program? He could have said, yeah, Judge, everything's going well. But that young man said, Judge, things aren't going quite well. I overdosed on Friday, crashed my car. Nobody knew that. I didn't know it. The caseworker didn't know it. And his honesty there told me that he's, he's going to beat this addiction. But more importantly, his mother came up, and, and she was so impressive in her words, you know, saying that it's, she's holding him responsible for his conduct, and he needs to go into custody. And... Um, you know, she's, she's working as, as hard as she can, 
restricting where he goes, restricting, restricting the amount of money that he has access to. Uh, because we know, you know, you, if you love your child and they come to you and you, uh, I need this, I need that, they'll tell you anything to get their hands on money, to get their their drugs. Yeah. So we need to be strong. We, uh, I guess that's the suggestion I would say. If you suspect somebody is using, contact the ADM Crisis Center, uh, uh, get involved and do not do not be complacent with that situation. I tell people if their kid, if you suspect their your children is using, and they come and ask for money for tennis shoes or money to buy a book or money to pay a bill, you pay that bill. You pay to get those tennis shoes. Don't do not just give them the money uh, because odds are they're they're not being honest with you. That's sure. that's the reality of it. Um, so families are very, very important. They can be either an extension of our team, and we like to, to tell people that when they come to court. I'll have the graduate or a reward recipient come before me, and I'll say, who'd you bring with you today? And if it's parents or a sponsor, I have them join us up front because they are an important part of the team as well. On the other hand, uh, parents can also be very, very difficult to deal with if they're enabling. Yeah. Uh, we had a situation where somebody wanted to send their kid out of town for treatment. There are some great programs out of town, but my experience has been they go to those treatment programs out of town. They come back to the same environment. Their friends are still here. The... Same people, the contacts, and that they right? Yeah. So while they may do well out of state for three months, so I try to, I try to convince them. Let us work with them. We'll have them for a year, a year and a half. We'll be able to set him up with a new, new friends, new friends, a new lifestyle. I think it's much more effective to have that longevity, that contact with them over time, and I think it's shown that uh, through the successes that we've had, that that's probably the better way to go. Yeah. In most instances. And the longevity when it comes to opioid uh, addiction is so important. I mean, it's a year to 18 months, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Before the brain even starts to, to change, right? Yeah. So that means that a lot of your programs, if you go away and look at your insurance and what it's going to cover, well, inside of 120 days, you're back. Right. So... And of course, we also I should talk about our Vivit. You know, we have access to Vivitrol, which is a wonderful uh, asset to have. Vivitrol, mm -hmm. as I'm sure you know, and hopefully your listeners know, is a total block to heroin. People cannot get high on heroin once they're under the uh, under the Vivitrol shot. So a shot once a month. Yeah. And we provide that at the jail. What a perfect, perfect scenario where somebody's in custody, and oftentimes I'll do that. If I'm a, obviously, I my concern is safety of my participants. So if I think that they are in danger of overdosing, I am going to take them into custody. It's amazing how many people go screaming and kicking away that later come back and say thank you for 
taking me into custody. So you take them into custody and you make that decision that, yep, we're going to do Vivitrol also. Well, yes. And that's, that could be the reason I'm taking them into custody to give them that seven to nine day period of, of being clean mm-hmm. so that they can get that Vivitrol shot, be released and come into the program. Think of the services that we have available to them once they've gotten that shot. It's it's like it works hand in hand with that with the concept of Vivitrol not being able to get high, getting into a program that has resources to help you deal with your addiction. So speak to why having that shot then opens up the world of resources to them. Well, because they're in my program and they all have access to uh all of the resources that we have. If they need to go into residential or if they have to go to sober housing or if they have to start with their uh, mental health treatment with Summit Psych or Portage Path, you know, now they're in a better position to deal with those issues. Yeah. Um, Judge Teodosio, this has been really great. Is there uh, anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners today as we conclude? I think I'd like to leave everybody with a message of hope. What I see in the courtroom is people who, who are changing their lives. Who It's very difficult for them. So, so difficult, but it, it's attainable. And I don't ever want us to lose, lose sight of the fact that these are all human beings, many of them good, good people who, whose addiction stemmed from an injury or or an accident where they got started on opiates that led to to the terrible addiction of heroin and uh, we shouldn't give up on them and and that's my message I guess a message of hope well thank you again really appreciate it thank you we've been visiting today with judge Tom Teodosio and learning quite a bit about his drug court called the Turning Point Program in Akron, Ohio. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover Two Resources. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover Two Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover Two Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.